I'm going to read an excerpt from my nonfiction work in progress called The Nine, which is the story of nine women who escaped from the Nazis in Germany at the end of World War II. One of those nine women was my great aunt, Hélène Podliaski. The book which I'm working on should be published next year by St. Martin's Press. I'm going to just read some of the opening uh, part of the book from the first chapter. My Tante Hélène was a beautiful young woman. She had a high forehead, deep apricot skin, and a wide smile. She had raven black hair and dark eyes with thick, sensuous eyebrows. She appeared small and delicate, but you sensed an underlying strength. Even in old age, when I knew her, she had a regal manner. She was always dressed elegantly, impeccably manicured, and radiating intelligence. In the photos of her in her twenties, she looked poised and clever. She worked mostly alone, discreet and careful when she spoke. People listened. She was a natural leader. In May of 1943, she joined the Bureau des Opérations Ariennes, BOA, for the Region M. The BOA was created that April to act as a liaison between the Force Française de l'Intérieur, the FFI, the name used by Charles de Gaulle for the resistance, and England. The BOA's role was to ensure the transport of agents and messages and to receive parachute drops of arms. The M area covered Normandy, Brittany, and Anjou, and was the largest FFI region. Right before the Normandy landing, managing this territory was crucial and dangerous. The Gestapo often succeeded in capturing or killing the leaders and network members. In the frenetic months surrounding D-Day, Hélène's region was a hotbed of activity for both the Résistance and for the Gestapo's increasingly vicious and desperate attempts to break the underground networks. Hélène was 23 years old when she joined and in a break from her studies of physics and mathematics at the Sorbonne, she had taken a significant job as a chemist in a lamp company. But as her resistance activities grew, she left that job to work full-time in the struggle against the fascists. She lied to her parents about what she was doing. Her nom de guerre was Christine, and this was the name she was known by in the group of nine women who would later escape together. Even in the Nazi records, she was known as Christine. Hélène was responsible for finding terrain suitable for parachute drops. For each drop, she had to gather a team of resistance workers to be ready at the landing sites. Eventually, her work evolved to include making liaisons between the different resistance networks in the M region. To communicate information to London about the reality on the ground, she coded and decoded messages that were broadcast over the radio. She waited with anticipation for the full moon when the planes could find the terrain in the dark. Three days before the full moon, she listened to the radio. The secret codes were broadcast on the BBC, and she often wondered what ordinary listeners thought when they heard phrases like, Eileen's leather soles are too big. She and her team were waiting in the shadows of the woods that skirted the small field of her favorite reception site in Somblassé near, near Tours. They heard the engine plane approaching. She turned her flashlight on and off in Morse code, beaming the agreed-upon letter as a signal. To her great relief, after a moment, a little airplane blinked on its lights. Now, she whispered to her team, and one by one, like dominoes, they lit their flashlights, outing, outlining the perimeter of the reception area. The little plane circled a few times. Hélène's heart raced as she thought of people in the village hearing the loud engine or seeing the white silk of the parachutes glowing in the moonlight as they descended to earth. As soon as the containers hit the ground, her team ran into the field to gather them. They were filled with small arms, explosives, a new transmitter, 
new code sheets, and for the morale of her group, the British had included chocolates and cigarettes. As they filled their pockets with cigarettes and their backpacks with the small arms, the men paused, hearing the airplane turn around and circle again. On a third circle, something else dropped from the sky. Ellen saw a dark outline of a man floating down beneath a glowing white silk parachute. She quickly distributed the contents of the remaining packages to her team, ordering them to disperse quickly in different directions. It was better if they left before the parachutist landed. The less anyone knew, the better. Only two men remained behind to get rid of the empty containers and to bury the parachutes. Not for the first time. She wished she could keep the lovely silk to make a dress. But there were orders. The mysterious man unhooked himself from the harness and lit a cigarette. He stood off to the side and watched Hélène organizing the two remaining men. She did not approach him either. Before they spoke, she wanted to gather her thoughts. Besides, this was part of the operation that had to go fast. They had to be dispersed before the site, from the site within 15 minutes, so if anyone had seen the parachutes or heard the engine, it would be too late by the time they got here. Finally, Hélène approached the new arrival. He was tall and thin, with a sharp, angular face. When he pulled on his cigarette, the ember glowed, and she could see more of his face. He seemed amused. I wasn't told there would be living cargo, she said, barely hiding her anger. Fantassin, he replied, putting out his hand for her to shake. Reluctantly, she took it. And you must be Christine. I was told about you. Why wasn't I told about you? I don't have anything prepared. When she was scared, Alain tended to sound angry. She knew the name Fantassin meant foot soldier in French, and the code name had been whispered about. He was someone important. She was glad it was dark so he couldn't see her blush. We didn't want to risk it being known that I'm back in France. The Bosch have broached our networks. We have to be very careful. He handed Hélène a cigarette and lit it for her. This gave her some time to think. Fantassin had a smirk on his face, as if he enjoyed the difficult position the surprise landing put her in. But I don't know where to take you, she said, dropping her tough demeanor. We trust you. I will stay in your apartment until I can make contact. He didn't ask her. He ordered her. And he was amused, it seemed, that it made her uncomfortable. If her mother knew, she thought. Her mother had been educated by nuns who would tell the group of marching girls as they passed the building of the boy students to avert their gaze because they were passing the temptation of sin. Her apartment was a long bike ride away in another town, far from the landing site. Fantassa carried a black leather briefcase tied to his wrist so it wouldn't be lost in the jump. He handed it to her and said that they would ride together. She could sit on the back. With one hand, she clutched the briefcase, and with the other, she held on to the strange man as he pedaled them through the night. She tried not to grip him too tightly, but she felt the heat from his back. The only conversation was when she would told him to turn here or there. A few times, she said, stop, that made him pull the bike over and duck into some place to hide while she checked to see if they were being followed. It was a routine she had worked out over time, but this night she was especially careful. The long ride in the damp early morning calmed her nerves. When they arrived at her apartment, the darkness of the night was beginning to wash out. The sun would rise soon. She was exhausted. Her place was small, one room with a kitchenette and a tiny bedroom. She had decided she would give him the bed and sleep in the living room. But once inside the small apartment, she felt suddenly shy. She told herself that this was her job. She stiffened her back and stood up straight. Fantasan placed the briefcase on the kitchen table and opened it. It was full of money, more money than she had ever seen in her life. He reached in and handed her some bills. 
No, she said, feeling her face flush red. I don't need the, I don't do this for money. I do it for France, for my honor. She might have appeared indignant to Fantassa, but she was scared. She did not want him to think she was that sort of woman. It's not for you. It's for your team, for the men who were here last night. They do it for France, too, she said. She spoke without thinking, something she rarely did. For the families, then, the ones who have already sacrificed, she nodded. Her pride and discomfort had gotten in her way of her thinking. He was right. There were many, she knew, who were in hiding or who did not have access to ration cards, who were hungry. This money would help them. She needed to pull herself together. She took a deep breath. You must be tired, his voice softened. How old are you? She had just turned 24 a few weeks earlier. He sat down in the chair by the sofa and lit a cigarette. There was a long silence. You can take the bedroom, she said after a moment. No, please, I'll be fine here, he indicated the couch. When Hélène protested, he said he was her superior officer. He said, yes, we are soldiers, but please let me also be a gentleman. Fantassin's real name was Valentin Abbé. He was the head of the entire M region. The Germans had put a large bounty on his head. At this stage in the war, the Gestapo were relentless. They had been able to plant a few double agents in resistance cells. These groups were comprised mostly of idealistic young men who received little or no training and were unable to keep the tight grip on security. Some of the younger men would boast about what they were doing to get Lebosch. They told too many people, allowed themselves to be followed, and didn't follow the proper safety protocols. The average time a person lasted in the resistance before being caught was three to six months. In the end, Fantassin was most likely betrayed by his secretary for the bounty money. He was arrested by the Gestapo. While they were leading him to the infamous Gestapo torture site on Rue in Paris, he jumped from the car. He knew his escape would fail, and he died not far from the Arc de Triomphe under a hail of bullets. He had let Hélène know during their brief days they spent together that he would not allow himself to be taken alive. He knew too much. He showed her the cyanide tablet he carried with him. It was better, he told her, the less she knew. While she worked in the resistance, Hélène had liberty that a young woman in France at that time would normally not have. Her parents and sisters moved to Grenoble at the start of the war. Her father was running a factory. Her parents thought she stayed behind to pursue her studies. They would only find out the truth about her activities later, when someone from the network let them know what had happened to her. Hélène remembered those months as exhilarating. She was doing what was right. She was a young, independent woman who was trusted with an important role and in charge of older men. Lives depended on her. There were moments of high adrenaline like nothing she ever experienced before. One such shock came when she arrived at the assigned terrain one early evening and was greeted by a French gendarme group, a French gendarme. She felt ice-cold panic wash down her spine. She was sure they had been sent to arrest her. She turned to cycle away when, they, when one of them called out the password code. She froze, trying to make the calculations. If they knew the code, then they must know everything. She felt a wave of nausea mixed with a resigned feeling of relief. The game was up. There was no point in running away. But she mechanically answered the code with her own, and the men walked up to her, asking for her orders. It took her a moment to realize they weren't there to arrest her. This was her reception team. What she had assumed was the end of the line for her was only another strange twist and triumph. A whole caserne of uniformed gendarmes had joined the resistance. This incident bolstered Hélène and gave her a sense of invincibility. On February 4, 1944, she was supposed to give a message to General Allard, who commanded a part of the M region. 
When she arrived at the small hotel in Brittany where they were meeting, she saw him running out one door, just as a group of five German soldiers entered by another. She was trapped in the middle. At first they arrested her simply because she was there. They rounded up everyone in the hotel lobby. The message was sewn into the lining of her purse, and miraculously the German police did not find it. She was able to maintain that she knew nothing about this Allard fellow they were after. They had nothing on her, no record. Her papers were in order. She played the docile, empty-headed girl, a role she would return to many times. It seemed to be working. While they held her in the prison in Van for a few days, the guards reassured her that it was only a matter of paperwork not to worry. They were waiting for confirmation, and she would be allowed to go home to her mother and father. But then, instead of releasing her, they transferred her to the prison in Rennes, where she was held for two weeks. It worried her, but still they didn't seem particularly interested in her. There had been no formal interrogation. They had asked nothing besides the most basic questions and why she happened to be at the hotel at that unfortunate moment. Then one day, two guards came into the cell where she was held with 20 other women and called her name. The men handcuffed her and led her to a waiting black car. A sort of violent anger bristled off of them. They refused to answer her questions or speak to her. She was transferred to the terrible prison in Angers, in the Loire Valley, where she would spend two months. Fifty-eight years later, during our interview in her apartment, where Hélène had allowed me to record her story, she said, Angers stays in my memory as a symbol of suffering itself. This was the place she was interrogated and tortured, sometimes to the point of being returned to her cell on a stretcher. The worst was La Souplice de la Benoire, or waterboarding. They would take her into an ordinary bathroom, where the tub had been filled with cold water. Her arms were handcuffed behind her. She was forced to kneel on the tile floor next to the tub. Two men, one on each shoulder, would push her head into the water. They would hold her head submerged under the water as she struggled for air. She felt their hands on her, one gripping her neck and the other pushing the back of her head. She tried to stay calm as her lungs begged for air and panic slowly rose up in her. There was a terrible pain in her chest while her neck and and head throbbed. The longing for air grew, and the struggle became more and more hopeless. Water flooded into her mouth and choked her. When they felt the fight leave her, they would pull her back out of the water by her hair and recommence the interrogation. She would retch over and over. It was in these moments of extreme pain that she felt most acutely the presence of her body, of her corporal existence. It was almost as if her body was her enemy, the way it took in pain. They had discovered who she was, what network she worked for, and some of the people she worked with. They knew Fantessin had stayed with her. They knew they had someone valuable. Each day they interrogated her, asking her for names of other agents, the code words, the message centers, the drop-off points, dates, times. She tried not to let out any useful information. For several nights, cold and wet, with her hands bound behind her back to the radiator, she tried to work out plausible stories, pure inventions that would fit with what they already knew, but would not betray anyone. She was hung by her arms. She was taken to the same tiled bathroom and almost drowned over and over again. Her fingernails were pulled out with pliers. Other terrible things were done to her. In our interview, Hélène stopped there, and I did not push for more details. There was a pause as she lit another cigarette, and I noticed her carefully polished manicure. When she started to speak again, she told me about a Jesuit priest, Father Alcatara, she said, remembering his name. He had permission to visit certain prisoners. One day, he handed me a small package. I saw the label with my name written on it. It was my mother's handwriting. That's when I cried. Her knees buckled. She fell to the ground and began to sob. 
It was the first time she had cried since being arrested. In order to keep her courage, in order not to break under torture, she had avoided thinking about anyone she loved, about her family. The package meant that they knew now what she had been doing behind her back. She felt a stab of guilt for causing them pain, and worse, a terrible longing to hear her mother's voice. The German guard in charge of her cell was an Alsatian about the same age as Helen. She spoke perfect German, so they talked occasionally. He was disturbed by what he saw the Gestapo doing to her. He hated them, and his eyes filled with tears when she returned bloodied and battered on the stretcher. He whispered encouragements through the her cell window, which she only half heard in her semi-conscious state. He told her that she should just tell them what they wanted to know, and then she would be left alone. He told her that he wished she wasn't so brave. He took a small letter for her family and mailed it to her godfather. Hélène knew that that way it wouldn't be traced to her. The young Alsatian soldier must have kept the address because later, after the war, he looked for her by contacting her godfather. He wanted to know if she had survived. He wanted to know if she, how she was. But by then, so much worse had happened to her. She was no longer that young, relatively innocent girl whom he had guarded in a prison cell in Angers. After the war, she simply wrote back to him that, yes, you could say she had survived, but that was all. She did not allow for more communication with him. She wasn't permitted to have anything in her cell. And all alone with no books, no paper, no magazines, she felt her slipping over the edge. She begged the guard, and he gave her a pencil. On, a white, on the white walls of her cell, she worked on mathematical questions. When I asked what sort of questions, Hélène scribbled down an equation on a scrap of paper. I showed my sister Annie, a mathematician, this equation, and asked her, what was she doing? Annie said she was integrating the Gagazian integral, finding the square root of pi. Annie explained that the square root of pi and e are called transcendental numbers. Transcendental numbers, or imaginary numbers, exist outside of ordinary math. In the history of math, the concept of imaginary numbers was the cause of great anxiety and drama over the ages as different mathematicians began to discover that they might exist. In the same way, Einstein's ideas would up to end Newtonian physics. In the early 19th century, a young French mathematician, Galois, was expelled from Lycée. His mathematical theorems were rejected. He wrote feverish letters the night before he died in a duel, leaving proof that not all quantic polynomials can be solved. His final words to his brother were, Don't cry, Alfred. I need all my strength to die at age 20. In her cell, at age 24, Hélène was gathering her strength to die. She worked on a proof that you cannot trisect an angle with a straight edge and a compass. You cannot square the circle. There exist numbers which cannot be constructed. These are transcendental numbers. Later, when Hélène landed in Ravensbrück, her first concentration camp, she would recognize her friend Zaza from the Lycée. They would cling to each other in the shower, fearing that the rumors were true and that the tiny holes in the ceiling would, not, would soon release gas that would kill them. But instead, they were drenched in freezing water. Hélène became number 43,209. Zaza became number 43,203. The Germans were stern about their numbers. The prisoners endured endless roll calls, the appels to assure their count. People became numbers and then nothing. At least six million of them.